open them up to Daniel chapter 6. You know, we are, um, we have this story, and when I, in my prayer, said that one of the most commonly told stories in the entire Bible, I don't know how you would actually count and quantify that, but I'm pretty sure that in Sunday school, the story of Daniel and the lion's den has to be uh, either one or two. What would the other one be? And we take, Jackie, take a crack at it. David and Goliath, of course, right? So Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. So we're going to study this tonight. You know, one of the things that God's Word does, and it's kind of one of the reasons why we feel like that, that, that God has absolutely orchestrated and written the words of the Bible because he, he records the mistakes and the failures of all the people that come through the Word of God. Um, and, and part of the reason why God records so many mistakes and so many failures is because he, he, he wants to send partially a message that we are all broken people and that God doesn't need to use perfect people, that God can use and will use broken people. That, that if everybody in the Bible was like Daniel and no mistakes were recorded of their lives, it, it would discourage us a little bit. We don't never live up to their standard, but we can read the life of somebody like David and be like, well, look at that guy. I can do that, you know, or we can see how God uses imperfect people and their 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 failures, and not only their fail, failures, but their trials are recorded in detail, and we see how God was faithful all the way through them as we walk through their lives. Daniel, uh, we have a verse coming up, we'll get to it in a minute, but Daniel is unique in the Bible in that there's no sins or mistakes in the Bible recorded of Daniel's life. There's one little verse in Daniel where there was like something going on that, you know, if you really tweaked it and argued it, you might find a recorded mistake, but I, I don't really see it. And the other one would be in the Bible that I know of. Anybody else? Well, Jesus, of course. <laughs> yeah, but apart from Jesus, uh, Joseph is the other one that the Bible doesn't record anything negative um, directly about. I guess you could, again, infer a few things in Joseph's life because we have so many details. And you might say that when Joseph sat his mother and his dad and his, all his brothers down and said, hey, I'm going to be your boss one day, that... Uh, that might have been some kind of negative. So just put this up, ask Brian to put this up, because I wanted to kind of bring us to speed in Daniel chapter 6. Now, we're studying um, on purpose Daniel and Revelation together because of the prophecy aspect, and we're studying prophecy. And so, but I will tell you, there's no prophecy in tonight's message, because Daniel chapter 6 has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. But don't worry, if you're a prophecy buff and that's your thing, come back next week, because next Wednesday in Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy picks up um, in full speed, 7, a little break in 8, 9, 10, 11, all prophecy stuff, end time stuff, good stuff that will coincide with what we're doing in Revelation. So we've already passed the head of gold. This was Daniel's um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 and verses 31 through 45. And Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel interprets the dream. Well, um, the head of gold, who was Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, they have been conquered where we are here in chapter 6. And now the, the Babylonian Empire is being ruled by Darius the Mede. And so we're now in the breast and arms of silver under the Medo-Persian Empire. Anybody know where Persia is? Or what Persia is? Iran. I don't know when, but it was very recent. I think in 1920 or 30. Um, up until that point, Iran was, was called Persia as a country, and now they are called Iran. If you talk to uh, somebody from the Middle East that's from Iran and you say, um, you say they're Arab, they'll, they'll, they'll correct you and they'll stop you. They want to make a difference, a distinction that they're not Arab, they're Persian. 
you know, I can, I can kind of get that because I grew up multicultural in L.A. And, you know, you, we, had, we had all of our Mexican homies. But if you had a dude from Latin America, like Ecuador, El Salvador or something, you called him Mexican. Like, I ain't Mexican, fool. I'm from, I'm from Guatemala. And they, they say, they say, Guatemala. I'm from Guatemala. I'm from Nicaragua. Nicaragua. And, uh, and so they made a big difference. They're not Mexican. They're South American. And so same thing in, in the Middle East with the Persians. And they are different. And Iran is um, kind of a pullout in the Middle East because they're Persian and not Arab. And they're also um, Shiite Muslims and not Sunni Muslims. And so we have that. And Saudi Arabia is Sunni, where the majority, the majority of, of Arab Islam is um, Sunni and not Shiite. So they have a different eschatology, and they love to fight each other. So, All right, Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps over the whole kingdom. Now, Darius is possible that it was... A title and not necessarily a name like um, we know that in the Medo-Persian Empire that it's actually Cyrus who is the famous Medo-Persian king that will actually issue the decree that will allow Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the Jewish temple. How long was the Babylonian captivity set for? How long did God give them? 490 was their crime. And they owed him one year for each, each set of seven. So they owed him 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And then by the time they reached the 70-year mark, Cyrus is ruling the Medo-Persian Empire. And he is the one that gives the Jews the right to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. And that's when we get into Nehemiah and Ezra and that section of your Bible where they're talking about that season. Now, I shared it last week, so I don't need to go into it again this week. But that's why today... Um, Trump is very popular in Israel because they say that he's our modern-day Cyrus. He's a pagan king that was friendly to Israel. They even minted a coin with Cyrus's picture on one side and President Trump's picture on the other side. So in verse number 2, and it says, Over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors, the satraps, because he had an excellent spirit that was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole reign. Now, do you guys remember, hopefully, one of the things that we highlighted last week, and I think even the previous week, and I don't even know how many times, I was starting to count them through the chapter, and I just kept running into more and kind of just gave up. But how many times the, the Bible records about Daniel that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he had a countenance about him that was better than the others, that he was, people would compliment and comment that he was a man who was full of God's Holy Spirit. And here we have again that it says, because an excellent spirit, what do we call that excellent spirit? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost for you Pentecostals, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was in him. You know, one of the things I share about them, the reason why I highlight that is because, again, you know, what, what do you want people to recognize about you as a Christ follower is that you're full of the Holy Spirit, that you're full of, that you have some countenance about you. And when people see you, they want to be able to, you want them to be able to see a difference in you. And maybe you have that friend that, or that person you know in your life, and they do have that little bit of Holy Spirit glow that people recognize. And if you're around somebody like that, it's really contagious, right? You're like, I want that. I want to be full of the Holy Spirit and have that and people to be able to recognize that. And it's your best witness tool, too. 
being led and full of the Holy Spirit, and Daniel was just the powerhouse, and it was just unavoidable. Everybody in his life recognizes around him that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you guys a question. I told you what the um, goal was, being full of the Holy Spirit, but I guess it doesn't do no good if I don't tell you how to get it. How do you get to that point? Okay, very good. That's the way I love to say it. Read your Bible and pray every day, but allow me to say it a different way today. Intimacy with God, right? To be full of the Holy Spirit and have that glow, it, it, it comes natural by being having intimacy with God. It's part of reading your Bible and praying every day. Um, I have a good friend of mine in Oregon. Parenthetically, let me die, let me uh, rabbit trail for a minute. But I've been counseling him this week, and he called me out of the blue, and he just told me, "Man, I'm just in a season of my life where he's like, I'm just done." And he's he's had multiple businesses and ventures, and calls me out of the blue every once in a while. A kid I grew up with, my neighbor, one of my longest friends, we we're friends from like the fourth grade, and. He's got this new business that's going to make him $10 million in two days and this and that. And it's always something about millions and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And, call, and I've been counseling, encouraging, loving on him. And he's kind of nominal Christian. He called me yesterday and he's like, dude, he's like, he had coronavirus. Big old, he's all yoked out and no neck. And he's always posting videos of himself at the gym. <clears throat> and he's like, he lost 22 pounds in 12 days. He lost all of his size. He's like, I worked years to look like this, and in 12 days, you know, I lost everything. And he's just like, and part of that, and he's like, you know, like facing death, and he just, but he, he, God has been really pulling and working on his heart for a long time. And, and I, was, I was talking to him about Jacob, right, Jacob's story. And it's a biblical story that just repeats itself so many times through the Bible. But the story of Jacob is that he was stubborn. He wouldn't surrender. He wouldn't surrender. He wouldn't surrender. He wouldn't surrender. And so what did God do? God wrestled with Jacob, and in, and in the wrestling, he, he, he injured his hip, and he, and, he, and he shrunk that muscle around his hip, and Jacob walked with a limp. And, and then it was at that point in Jacob's life when he was broken that God was able to then change his name from heel catcher, deceiver, surplanter, to governed by God. And, and the rest of Jacob's testimony as he changes from Jacob to Israel, and then he has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and that brokenness, King David, who was... Um, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, sacrifice, and you don't desire, God. If you desired it, I would give it, you know. And he said, but a broken and a contrite heart, this God you desire. And so I was sharing this with my friend, and, you know, and he's, he's been that guy before, you know, where, like, he'll call and, or he'll, he'll call and say, oh, did you see what I gave to your church today? Well, I'd say, yeah, I saw it, man. You're still not going to heaven, dude. <laughs> Can't buy your way to heaven. You know, sometimes just, Somebody wants to hand you a check as a pastor, and they say something like, here, I just want to make a donation to your church. Will you, will you put a good word in for me for the good old boy upstairs? You know, I think oftentimes the wisdom is just to say, you know what, I can't receive that check from you and because I don't want to be a part of sending a message to you that, that you can buy your way into heaven or that you can buy God's favor. That's not what God's interested in. God's not interested in sacrifice. He's interested in a broken and a contrite heart. And And again, that brokenness, but... And I shared all that to say my friend called me the other day and he had reached that point in his life where he was broken. And he, was, and he just said, I don't, I don't want any of those things anymore. I don't want to chase those things anymore. And, and I've done it and I just, I just want to get out and I, just, I really just want to serve God and I want to grow. And so what did I tell him? I said, look, this is how, this is how your life changes, man. I said, make a commitment like you're committed to working out to read your Bible and praying every day. 
and, and begin a, a, a discipline of being intimate with God in your daily life. And God will begin to lead you and God will begin to guide you and God will begin to open doors. And he texts me the very next day. He's like, okay, I started in Job. I read the first three, three chapters. Hey, what's up with his friends? They're kind of weird. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, a great effort, great effort. Good, but I said, oh, and I walked him through it a little bit. I said, hey, let me encourage you. Like, start in the New Testament somewhere. Like, you're just starting out. I don't think Job is necessarily the greatest, like, start. You're going to get into those 35 chapters of Job's friends just babbling nonsense, and he's going to be confused. Who knows? He'll be calling me in a week and be, okay, I just finished Job, and I'm going to, who knows, something weird. So I said, yeah, just, I said, why don't you just skip those 35 middle chapters and just read the end where God shows up and tells those fools to shut up, and this is the way it really goes down. And So again, um, that was kind of Daniel 6. <laughs> So a little, a little uh, rabbit trail, but not, not so much, just to encourage us in that, this glow that we have of being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives, being spirit-led. It is born out of our relationship with Jesus. It's born out of our intimacy. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Your relationship, your effectiveness for God, your ministry is born out of your intimacy with God. And, you know, I think I, I've started now making more of a daily prayer of, God, increase my intimacy. God, increase my intimacy. God, increase my intimacy. And it's contagious, too, you know. I used to say I was so, like, I don't know if I was envious, if I was bitter, if I hated (laughs) the way Christians hate, like, you know, kind of like people that were addicted to working out. I'm like, I'm addicted to, like, burgers and donuts, and, like, you're addicted to working out? How do I do that, dude? How do I get addicted to working out and looking great? You know, I don't get it. I miss that. Like, but being addicted, it does become addicting when you, when you experience intimacy with God and you, you hear God's voice and you feel God show up in your life and you feel the Holy Spirit, you know, goosebumps in a real way and alone by yourself and your devotions on a daily basis. Verse number four says, so the governors, the satraps, they, they fought to find, they sought to find some charges against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault against Lydia because she was faithful and her husband was awesome nor was there any error or fault found in Daniel. And so again, I already kind of shared the testimony of Daniel that God records no faults in his life and that he was, um, and they couldn't find any problems. They were looking for a way. Now you have to understand that these men in our story today, they have murder on the heart. They're not looking for, you know, they, they have murder on the heart and they're trying to find a way to get rid of Daniel and they, they just cannot. His, his testimony, his life, they can find no faults in him. They're not going to send, you know, girls to, to trip him up because that's not an area that he's going to stumble in. They're not going to send somebody in with money and things to buy him off. He's not stumbling there. They can really find no weakness in his character that they can exploit. Other than, verse 5 says, These men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. You know, I, I love it that they they uh, they understood because they served what? They served multiple gods. They served a plurality of gods, and so they understood that Daniel served one God. And Daniel would have known and had the Torah and and Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so so they had they understood too that Daniel served one God, his God. They didn't say concerning his gods. And these, these, are the, these guys are the first lions in the story. We're going to get to some other lions in a minute, but these are the first lions in the story. 
So the governors and the satraps, they thronged before the king, and they said, to, they said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. They always start with flattery. But I guess it was customary. Even Daniel uses it, so I guess it wasn't so terrible, but flattery will get you nowhere. All the governors of the king, kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god, little g, or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions, the real lions. And now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Now, the Persian lions um, are kind of famous in history. And they, 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 they were bred a certain way. They were kept half-starved. They were used to kill people, to torture people, for maiming. And so these lions were bred mean. The meaner they were, the better they were. They were ferocious. They, were, they, they had an appetite. We've seen that in um, recent history, too. They had some some country where the, the workers were working in this particular area and there was two lions and they killed over a hundred men before they were able to capture and kill those lions because they had got a taste for human flesh. And once they get that taste for human flesh, and so these lions, these Persian lions were, were particularly bred this way. They were ferocious. They were killers. They were kept half starved so that they would get the job done when you threw somebody into the den. And so they come to King Darius and, and the only way they can figure out to get Daniel is to get King Darius to sign a law that nobody can pray to any other god or serve any other god or petition any other god for 30 days except for King Darius, knowing that Daniel has this custom. The whole Babylon would know it. Daniel would have had a corner office in the, in the palace, in the, in, the, in the offices there in Babylon, in the top story, because he was the head of the satraps in this department, and he had been since Nebuchadnezzar. He had been elevated and elevated his entire career in Babylon. He had big windows that faced Jerusalem. And three times a day, anywhere in the city, if you're walking by the downtown area of Babylon, you look up into the office space and you see Daniel's office and his place and his windows open to Jerusalem and Daniel on his knees in front of God, praying and seeking the Lord. He did it every day, three times a day. And they said, um, let's stop that. If we can stop him from doing that, we can, we can trap him. Now, as I've said before, the head of gold that was Nebuchadnezzar, he was a God king in that Nebuchadnezzar, anything he said went. He could, he could make a law. He could change it five minutes later. If it came out of his mouth, it was bond. That's why when we move to the successive kingdoms down the, um, the statue, now we're in the kingdom of silver. And in silver, it's a little less. It's a little lesser than the gold. The law of the Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persian kings were not God kings. They could say and they could make law, but once it became into Medo-Persian law, it then would, would supersede what the king could then do the, the law was bond above the king's word and will. And so they have to get him to sign this into Medo-Persian law. Then then they realize that, that they tricked him because Darius is going to realize that this was a trap and a trick and not something he would have went through with um, if they knew what, what he was really doing. He's going to realize they did it to get Daniel and to murder Daniel. And he signed off on it and it's going to really bum him out, but he can't go back on it at that point. And again, as a, you know, as a pagan king... The flattery, you know, was, was kind of nice, and he caved into the flattery and this idea that they were going to only be able to petition and worship him for 30 days. And then they put this in verse 8, they put this like, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed. They put this pressure sales on him. 
this pressure thing. And I'll tell you, it's always a bad decision for us to make decisions under pressure. You know, it's something that I've come to the point now where it's like, I hate it. Like, we even have lots of ministry um, sales pitches. And often they're selling good stuff. They're selling Bibles. They're selling whatever, Sunday school curriculum. They're selling, you know, different stuff. And I get these emails and these sales pitches. And every once in a while, even from the Christian ministries, I'll get this email. And it'll say something like, last chance if you don't act now. As soon as I see that, I'm to the point now where I'm like, okay, it's the last chance. And I don't want nothing to do with you. I got to just get rid of it. I won't even read it. I won't even open it at that point. Anything that, that, that's selling me or telling me it's the last chance, you know, it's like the classic, like, car salesman, pressure car salesman thing, right? Like, their, their number one goal when you show up is to what? Not let you leave. That's the thing. If you make a deal and all that, they, they do not want to let you leave. That's how they do it. So, you know, I remember one time it was just this pressure, sign now, sign now, sign now. Lydia and I were looking for, like, Probably as a married couple, young married couple, our first like car we were buying from a dealership. We were still looking for a used car. And I think we decided on a little like, because uh, I know what we bought. And we looked at it, it was a four, four, little four-door Ford Focus. And uh, so we're at this dealership in Palm Desert, and the deal was going to be like 17000 for this little four-door Ford Focus. And we were there for a couple hours, and the guy was doing this and that. And as soon as I tell him what I do, you know, what do you do? I tell him I'm a pastor. And oh, really? I serve faithfully at my church. You know, I was like, oh, you ain't never been to church in your life, dude. Shut up. But we're there. We're on and on. So I was like, and we were like seriously really close. The deal was already done. He had all the details and everything. Lydia and I are going back and forth on it and probably calling people and calling her dad, see what he's out and doing all this stuff. And we're there forever. And so I tell the guy, look, I'm going to go to lunch and I'm going to let it settle and, and pray about it. And Oh, no, if you go to lunch, then, then that car won't be here when you get back. Someone's going to buy that car, and you won't have it. you got to sign it right now. And I said, look, I just want to go to lunch. We're going to go. We'll come back. And, but they don't want to let you leave. You know, they know. And so we, we just, you know, and at the time, I didn't really know, but that we don't want to do anything under that pressure. And we ended up leaving. We didn't buy the car. The whole feeling of, oh, i got to sign and really wanting to do it and ready to do it. And we found the same car for 10000 same exact car, maybe a little better, for 10000 that we were going to pay 17000 for. You know, and then, and then I love telling them, you know, like, oh, someone else is going to buy it. And I'll say, oh, it's not God's will for me to have it. They hate that. You know, I'm like, well, if God wants me to have it, I'll have it. And if he doesn't, then it wasn't meant for me. It was meant for somebody else. And I, but I mean that, too. But, you know, anyway, honestly, in life, and it, it is a point of trusting God. And what God was actually teaching me something through it and over the years, which... I don't know, you guys can tell me your stories, and then we could decide if this is true or not. But I feel like, you know, Lydia and I have always had pretty good luck buying cars and over the years, and we've never bought fans. I always try to buy cars a year or two years old. Um, you know, that initial appreciation is gone. Really low miles, you know, and find a car that's a year or two years old with low miles on it. And anyways, that's been in our budget, the way we bought cars. But we've been super successful and had good deals buying cars that way. But got kind of good at it, too, just in that, I don't know, I'm kind of shrewd, too, as a as my little L.A. gangster in me who still kind of helps me nowadays when I buy cars, you know, that kind of still a little shrewdness in me that can help buy cars. But definitely don't miss what I'm saying. <laughs> don't, as a, as a believer in Christ, you know, especially in those decisions, don't do things under pressure. If you feel this pressure and this anxiety and i got to act now and if I don't do it, you know, whatever it is, if it's an investment, if it's Bitcoin, if it's buying something, if it's on the spot, wait. And if you can't do it tomorrow, if you can't take a breath, if you can't take a step back, 
and then and then make a decision the next day or in 24 hours you're making probably a bad decision and if you do feel like oh if i don't buy it now someone else is going to get it then you're probably not supposed to have it you're probably not supposed to have it and god probably has something better for you if you'll wait and you'll trust in him and i think we make bad decisions when we when we especially under that pitch act now last chance last 24 hours to do this or that okay and then, you know, this, like even on those ministry deals, oh, last 24 hours. If you don't act within 24 hours, this will go away. A week later, I'll get another email from the same company selling the same thing, you know, in a different way. Like, I guess it wasn't the last 24 hours, huh? So anyways, they put this pressure tactic on, on Darius to sign this deal. And he goes ahead, and then it says in verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the decree under the pressure um, tactic. Now, the temple, Daniel... Um, Remember that the temple hadn't been in function in 70 years. This is towards the end where we are here in Daniel chapter 6. It's towards the end of Daniel's Babylonian captivity. It had probably been in Babylon now for 50 plus years. So for a long time now, there's been no, um, nothing happening in Jerusalem or at the temple. It's been in ruins. There's been no um, sacrifices, anything going on at the temple for the last 70 years. And then it says, now Daniel, verse 10, here's where it gets good. He knew that the writing was signed. He went home, and in his upper room, now there's something cool about an upper room. Upper room and worship, they just go like hand in hand. Like there's a, there's a church somewhere, and they, they call themselves Upper Room, and they're like a worshiping church, and they, they really kind of just took this idea, and they, they're the kind of church like you go, and they just worship for like three hours straight, you know, and like, it, it, yeah, it's unique, but it's, it's this concept of upper room. Jesus was in the upper room. Daniel here, and he uses this term upper room. He goes to the upper room with his windows toward Jerusalem. And he knelt down on his knees three times. You know, the Arabs, I shouldn't say the Arabs, I should say Islam is constantly fighting about Jerusalem and their their holy ground and this and that. But, you know, when when a Muslim prays, he faces towards Mecca. When a Jew prays, he faces towards Jerusalem. But if you're facing towards Mecca, your rear end is facing towards Jerusalem. So when they pray, they face their butt towards Jerusalem. And the, the Jews, when they pray, they face toward Jerusalem. And so Daniel, as was his custom, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. And he prayed and he gave thanks before God, as was his custom since the early days. So Daniel wasn't, an, again, in rebellion against God. He wasn't, I mean, against, in, in his heart, he wasn't trying to rebel against any kind of rule. It was his custom. This is something that Daniel did every day. And it says in the beginning of this verse, it says, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, so he heard what happened, he knew what the consequences were, he was going to the lion's den. Maybe Daniel was just in that really cool stage of life, like, hey, I'm 70 years old, I'm ready to meet Jesus, throw me in the lion's den, like, I don't care, what, the, what are you going to do to me? But anyways, he doesn't care. You know, we talked about Daniel as a character on Sunday in the message in Revelation. You guys remember that? That Daniel was mysteriously missing in chapter 4 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through the, the, the fiery furnace. Hey, look at it real, with me really quick. Turn back a couple pages. Um, I didn't have this in my notes, so give me a second because i got to find the verse now from memory. Um, chapter 2, verse 48. It says, then the king, this would have been Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And so that's the last time we see Daniel in verse 48 and 49. The last time we see Daniel, he's being lifted or elevated to a higher position. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's my little story. 
And then as Daniel, the last time you see him, he's being promoted or lifted up. Then the next chapter is um, the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow down. They throw it in. They're thrown in. You're thinking, where is Daniel? He would have been thrown in too because he would have been there. He wouldn't have bowed down. We know his character. We see his character now in chapter 6. Well, Daniel's mysteriously missing. The last time you see him, he's being promoted. So we're going to have or lifted up to or elevated to a higher position. So now we're going to have that same thing. We're going to see something like similar in chapter 6 with Daniel where he's again going to be lifted up um, again into a higher position. But Daniel knows. So he, he goes home. He goes into the upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times. So how did Daniel pray that day? Or as was his custom? On his what? Knees. You guys ever pray on your knees? Does Jesus hear you better when you're on your knees? Are you more spiritual on your knees than if you're sitting on your butt or walking around or sitting in a jacuzzi? How did Jesus pray? You know what's crazy is that there's lots of different ways the Bible records Jesus praying. The only, the only way that they never record Jesus having prayed in the Bible is folded hands and eyes closed and head bowed. Never recorded in the Bible. Tons of other ways. It says that he was walking, he was kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane with his hands raised at times, his eyes lifted to heaven as mentioned sometimes. I like the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus did in that moment of his, his final hour of trial, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he did get on his knees. The Bible records that in two different Gospels that Jesus got on his knees to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of my favorite pictures of myself, I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane and I'm kneeling down trying to as much as possible reenact that kind of moment. And I, I like that picture because it was genuine. I was really worshiping God at that moment and somebody took a picture of me and I'm kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane trying to be my, do my best impression of what Jesus would have done in the Garden. But I will say this. There does seem to be um, some value in getting on your knees. You know, it hurts a little bit as you stay on your knees for a little bit and it kind of keeps you awake, kind of keeps you like aware of what's going on. And um, it, it tends to keep you a little more focused. And um, But there's there, again, there's no right or wrong way. And I love it that they, they record all, all these different ways. But, you know, I remember when Lydia and I first got married, I was, you know, a little little green around the ears and I, I, I was I was I, I, I tried to make her get on her knees to pray she wouldn't do it I thought what a sinner what a terrible person so it'd be like time to pray at night and I'd be like come on let's get on our knees on a bed I don't need to get on my knees I can pray right here like come on but spiritual people get on their knees like me I ain't getting on my knees I'm like yes you are come on <laughs> you know she, she not, not one time probably just to spite me after that or just to prove a point like no, I don't make you more spiritual if you get on your knees, and I'm not doing it. So I'd get on my knees next to the bed and pray for her demise. And No, I'd pray for her to get, get saved so she'd actually get on her knees and pray with me. And, but I, I do, honestly. There, there is a value, I think, and, and seriously. Just, and, and whether it's just a practical value, um, and not all the time. You know, on Sunday I felt led to, to kneel down in front of, in front of uh, my chair for a song, and, and, and I did. And it, again, it doesn't make me more spiritual. It doesn't make me more spiritual, but... It's always an invitation to you. And, I, and sometimes for me what it is, it, it's, a, it's a challenge to, to be obedient. And, and, if, and if I feel like God is putting something on my heart and it's embarrassing to me, raising our hands sometimes, doing certain things, um, but to me I want to be obedient to what I feel like God is saying. And so I just kind of do it. And, and you want to be humble too, right? You're not trying to put a display because if you're trying to put a display and show somebody how spiritual you are and they recognize that and they say, well, wow, look at you, you're kneeling, you're spiritual, and that's your reward. You get nothing in heaven. You wasted it. You know, and we don't want to do that either. But if it's genuine, it's from your heart, it's in obedience, 
And there's a value in it, you know. Get on your knees in front of your bed at night. Try it. If you don't have that discipline to kneel down. And, and again, it's not like the only or the right way to pray because Jesus recorded praying lots of times. I share with you guys all the time my preferred um, place where I, I, I pray practically most in my prayer life is in my jacuzzi. It's hard to fall asleep in jacuzzi. You can until your face hits the water. It usually wakes you up. But he kneels there. And then, and then it says three times... And he prayed and he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom. Now, we already talked about this, so I'm not going to get into too much, but I do want to hit it here. And, and basically, God uses men and women who pray. God uses men and women who read the Word of God. That's just the truth. God uses men of the Word, women of the Word, men who pray, women who pray. Again, those are disciplines of a Christ follower. And I tell people all the time, like, you know, if somebody, like, asks you for pray, like, and you text them praying hands, like, that's not going to cut it. Like you, you actually have to pray and, and commit to pray. If you're in person with somebody and they talk to you about something and they say, yeah, will you pray for me? It's a good discipline to say, hey, can we pray right now? And then at least you've prayed once. If it's the last time you pray, you'll never pray for it again. You'll remember it again. Then at least you did it that time. Or if you told someone, I'll pray for you. Then actually, like, it, it'd be a good discipline to actually like pause and say a prayer for them. Now, I'm not talking about like, I don't want, I'm not trying to say that you know, then for the next 10 days, you, you crawl around on ash and, you know, on your knees, praying over that situation. Even if you, but if you stop and you pause and you seek the Lord for that person or for that thing, it's, it's a good thing. My personal deal is I used to kind of wear, wear a little personal conviction about not covering prayer, not praying for certain things or certain people. And like, oh, I told that person I'd pray or I should be praying for this situation or that situation. I haven't. And I'd be kind of always bummed and down in the mouth about it. And I stopped doing that. I just kind of felt like, you know what? Um, what happens to me oftentimes in prayer is that God puts things on my heart to pray for. And when he puts something on my heart, like, I, I, you know, like oftentimes I'll be in prayer or committing a time to be praying. And I'll start thinking of, you know, an old friend. I'll start thinking of my missionary friend that's in the country of Georgia. I'll start, and these thoughts come in my mind of something that maybe, you know, it's Satan trying to distract me from praying or Maybe that's the Holy Spirit leading me and reminding me. And, that, and I just always use that. That's when I pray for them. And so, because Paul does say in the Word, Paul says, upon every remembrance of you. And so that was a discipline that Paul used. When God brought them to his remembrance, he then would say a prayer for them. And so um, it's also a good discipline in your prayer ministry to write things down. And if you want to, and if you commit or you tell a friend, hey, I'll pray for you, or I'm praying for that, or I'm praying for your family, and you actually have things that, that, that is a revolving list of things that you write down, then you can, you can go through it when you pray. And it's, it's really simple, too. Just You can read your list as you pray. God knows what you're praying for. God knows what you're saying. But having those things, and that's a good discipline, and keeping that, that list revolving as well. So God uses men and women who pray. And again, Daniel's greatest strength in life was born out of his prayer life. You know? Love to t- tell the Mary and Martha story right now. That Martha was a woman of wisdom and of devotion, and she was a person of prayer. She was a person of worship, and she spent her time at the feet of Jesus. And, and she has really high character in the Bible, and it really was born out of her devotion to Jesus. And so we see that in Daniel's life as well. Daniel was a person who was a man of prayer, and it was the great strength of his of his life. It was, and we talked about that countenance and being full of the Holy Spirit. And how do we get that by reading our Bible and praying every day? My deeper intimacy with God. Daniel had that in spades. And you see that through his life. And it says, <clears throat> that day he prayed, verse 10, we're still camping on verse 10 for a minute. 
And he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. So he just did what he always did. And he wasn't going to cower. Now, last thing on verse 10, because 10 is, the, is the, really the heart of this chapter, you guys. So I'm, I'm stopped right here. I'm camped on 10. So you can go over it in your heart, your mind right now as I'm talking about it. But um, highlight it. I, I want to talk about something. I want to talk about this for a minute. So you guys, again, you guys got to bear with me for a moment because I'm just going to talk to you for a minute. Something that's been on my mind and my heart. But here, here we do have a case of civil disobedience. Daniel, in the beginning of verse 10, he knew that, that the law was there and that it was against the law of the country that he lived in to do what he's doing. And so because of this, he's going to make a, a decision to disobey the law and, and, and prepare himself to go to the death penalty. He understands the lion's den is a death penalty sentence, but he's going to act in civil disobedience. Now, um, the, the general way that I've understand biblical obedience is that we are, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that we are to obey the laws of the lands of Christians, that God has not called us as Christians to be rebel rousers, to, to be people of, of disobedience, of, law, of lawlessness, that we're to follow the laws of the land. The Bible is very clear about that. In multiple places, we get this idea. We're, 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 we're to, by the most part, be good citizens of the cities and the places that we, we live. You know, one area I tease myself in all the time is that, you know, that would include driving the speed limit. So when I hit about 95 on the freeway, I should ask, I guess, Lord, forgive. I, listen, you'll be able to find me in heaven. I'll just say that, okay? Because I'll be the only guy in heaven that doesn't have a right foot because that thing is not going to heaven. That thing is, is evil. Uh, but the rest of me is pretty good. Just that right foot, it's, it's going the wrong, you know. So I'll be the guy with one foot. But we're supposed to have this obedience. Now, what we find in, in Acts is that, Peter and John are arrested and beaten, and then they are also given a rule to not go out and preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they go out the very next day, and they also themselves then demonstrate a civil disobedience. Because when the law of God supersedes the law of men, and when, the, when the, their moral laws and their personal convictions of, of God's law that's upon their heart, it supersedes it. So we have the apostles, we have Daniel here, we have cases where, where Christians are breaking the laws of the land, um, and, and that's the, the, the civil disobedience clause in the Scripture. And so we see that. I think that's the simple way to see it and understand it. Now, the thing, the reason why I kind of bring it up is because during coronavirus, with the no meat and meat, this was such a hot topic among pastors and leaders, and I heard all these opinions and all this commentary on... Because to me, it was like, like in Bible college and studying this idea of civil disobedience, like... It was so simple. Like It was Romans chapter 13. Obey the laws of the land. That's clear. Acts chapter... Peter and those guys about 7, 6. 6 is Stephen. Well, anyways, one of the first couple chapters of Acts, 4 or 5, somewhere in there. Um, Peter and John disobeying the law of the land. You take those two and you combine them together. When God's law... And so the whole idea was really simple to me. I had it figured out. That's, that's what the Bible teaches about. And then, but then I started hearing all of these different opinions. And, it, and of course it was like... Those that wanted to do one thing concerning the coronavirus and meeting and not meeting, like they were teaching it this way, and the guys that wanted to do something else were then teaching this way. Now all of a sudden there was all this, like, within the churches, this controversy over this idea of civil disobedience concerning the coronavirus. And I'm like, we've never been confused. I've never been confused at a church. And then I started re looking at it myself, like, it, was it really not just that simple that I got this wrong? And, and I looked at it, and I, I've just come full circle now, and like, no, that, that is still the way it is. That's, that's what the Bible teaches, and that's still the skinny of it. And I think, unfortunately, what happened is, is, some, is, is some, of, some of us, you know, jumped on one side or the other in order to defend a position that we felt 
about the coronavirus and whether we were meeting or not meeting. But anyways, thank you for that. I wanted to share that. Verse 11, we can finish 10 now. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Everybody say Philippians 4, 6. Okay, that's your key verse for prayer. Do, thank you. Be anxious for nothing, but do all things with thanksgiving. I'm doing it all up. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thank you. Um, so again, um, as you study prayer, which we're not going to do tonight, and this is good, this would be a good chapter to study prayer, but we're not necessarily studying prayer tonight, but prayers and supplications are a different aspect of the same prayer of our prayer lives. So supplications is the part of the prayer where we're asking God to do things. We're asking for favors. We're asking for stuff. Um, also in our prayers should be time of just where we just worship God. Where we're just thanking him. Thanksgiving is another part of our prayer life. Um, when I was a new believer, the church that I was involved in, a little tiny Calvary chapel in Hemet, they taught me Acts, A-C-T-S. And so I've heard some other ones since then that are pretty good, and other guys got some, some, some prayer kind of acronyms that are really good. But that was just the one that on my young heart was impressed, and it's the one that always sticks. But it's, um, of course I was going to do that because I didn't write it down. I'll tell you what they are in a minute. It's going to come to me in a minute. But it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, and so, and, but it was, a good, it was a good little thing. And I, had, I was learning how to pray. And so to, for me to have this little acronym that I could go through these four steps of prayer was valuable, and it's biblical. And you'll see that in these things of prayer. And so, um, you know, that's like we said, if you spend all your time in prayer just asking God for things and stuff, God's not a genie in a bottle. And so having some time for adoration, for confession, for thanksgiving, for um, supplications, and then supplications at the end. John Corson does an amazing thing on prayer. And he does it through the um, 11 steps of the, of the temple and of temple worship and how you start in the outer courts and you go in and the things that are there and you end up eventually in the Holy of Holies after about 11 steps. Of, it's phenomenal for prayer. If you're looking for something on prayer, um, check out John Corson's um, study through the temple, temple prayer. And then in verse 12 it says, and, and then they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king, the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, Yes, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So the Lord, I'm sorry, so they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, one of, does not show due regard for you, which was a lie, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king said, No! They got me. I'm sure at this point in the story, he realizes he'd been duped, he'd been tricked, and he's not happy, and we're going to see that. He was greatly displeased. From here, all the way through, like verse 21, we have these, um, in Hebrew, they're really descriptive ways to describe the king's um, reaction to all of this. And so he, when it says greatly, when it says very, when it says in haste, when it says lamenting voice, like, um, you know, the Bible doesn't exaggerate. So, you know, when it says that Jesus was with great sorrow, like we, we say that those kind of things about everything, you know, 
great this, great that, and it's not really that way. But when you read those things in the Bible, they do add this emphasis because the Holy Spirit doesn't exaggerate in the Word of God and these things are there. And so Jesus greatly lamented or greatly with great sorrow. And so we'll see that, that language coming through the king's reaction. And it says he was greatly displeased with himself. Was he mad at Daniel? Was he mad at the satraps? He was going to be mad at them eventually, but he's mad at himself. He, he let them trick him into this plan. He let his ego get in the way. He thought this would be cool. He, he, you know, he realizes that he's the one that's to blame. He's mad at himself. I love that, that he took the credit for this. He took the responsibility because ultimately he is the one that signed the decree. He let him flatter him. He let him pressure him. He's now kicking himself, like I talked about before, don't make decisions under pressure. He was greatly displeased with himself, and he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So basically, you know, I'd like to think he labored like in prayer and seeking God, but I don't think that's really what's saying here. Maybe he spent some time doing that, but what he did was he called his lawyers in, he called the lawmakers in, he looked at what happened, he looked at what the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which doesn't change, and it was set in stone. And he said, hey, is there any way we can get Daniel out of this? Is there any loophole? Is there something we can do? And they labored through the law, and there was no loophole. There was no way. The law of the Medes and the Persians doesn't change. And in verse 15, it says, Then these men approached the king, and they said to the king, No, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the commandment, and they brought Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, um, king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. How did King Darius have such confidence in Daniel's God? Again, because of the testimony of the life of Daniel. And he would have heard all these things. And he's the second guy that comes in. You know, Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar a long time before Darius ever got there. But Darius, I'm sure, would have heard the stories. You know, when when the Medo-Persians took the kingdom from the Babylonians, it was an act of God that showed up and wrote on the wall, meany, meany, tekel, you farsin on the wall as they came in. You've been, you've been weighed and found wanting. And um, and the stories of how they, they left the gates open and the, and the Persians came in and Medo-Persians and took the, the Babylonian Empire. And so... Daniel, um, this testimony, he says of that, that your God, he will deliver you. And he speaks this in faith. Now, later he's going to come and go, I hope he did. And there's still hope in this statement. But he's given Daniel confidence here. Now, again, really quickly, um, a lion, you know, like a big cat, like around our neighborhoods, right? Like the dogs beat the cats, right? Like don't the dogs chase the cats? Why does the dog chase the cat? You know, and, and the dog is superior, right? Like the dog is the is the big dog. That's why they call him the big dog, you know. And But actually in the wild, the, the whole table's turn. The biggest cats beat the biggest dogs. In the wild, it's not big dogs. What is the biggest dog on the planet? A wolf? See a wolf, right? Pretty sure a cat, lion, will smoke a wolf any minute, any day, right? So as you get into the jungle, it's the lions that actually become the ferocious. And these things are super ferocious. I mean, the... 500 pound lion and what they're able to do and you know there's pictures of lions that will kill a zebra put it in its mouth and jump an eight foot fence with a zebra in its mouth you know crazy stuff they can take down um hippos and you know animals that they've in the wild they've killed and elephants at times and giraffes and what they're able to do these big cats and these things are ferocious and um so and again these these particular persian lions were trained to be mean. They were kept hungry. 
And a lion does, in the wild, have to get a taste for human, human flesh before they'll become human killers. But these lions would have been trained to have that. And they would have got the job done. And it says, And then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed with his own signet ring and with the signets of the lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now when the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought for him, and also his sleep went from him. So he canceled dinner that night. He canceled the fancy musicians that would play him to sleep at night and entertain him in the evenings. And he wanted no food. He wanted to fast. He wanted just to, you know, sleepless night, worrying about Daniel. And it says, then the king arose very early. And again, those, those terms are, are not just there. They're, they're, they're meaning in those terms in the Hebrew. And those things are emphasis that it was very early in the morning. And he went in haste to the lion's den. So he must have been full sprinting, running, getting there as fast as he could. Um, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. What does a lamenting voice sound like? Do anyone want to try it? <laughs> I was going to say something. I won't. I won't. I'll be good. <laughs> a lamenting voice to Daniel. And then king spoke, saying to Daniel, what did he say? He said with a lamenting voice to Daniel, the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And so even though he already has made this statement, right? Your God will deliver you. Now he comes and he says, has your God done it? Because no doubt you want to see that, right? And there's always that still like, is it a reality? Does it happen? And um, I have a note here in my Bible and it says, Um, does your God, speaking to you, does your God shut the mouth of your lions? How about this? Can your God shut the mouth of your lions? Can your God remove your mountains or the mountains that's in your way? Or does only Daniel's God shut the mouth of his lions, but my God, personally for me, he doesn't shut the mouth of my lions. They devour me in my life. These these lions in my life, these trials in my life, these struggles in my life continue to devour me. And sometimes maybe it is a matter of faith, even faith that we see here at Darius where, where we confess and we say, and even though in our minds we need to see it as he needed to see it later, that, that your God, our God, will deliver us from the mouth of the lions. And, and just, you know, part of it is, there, there's a verse where Jesus said that it's according to your faith that it's given to you, and that if you pray with faith and without doubting and you know, and I know we're all, none of us are going to have these super amazing, like stellar, perfect in this area, but it's definitely a goal as we pray, as we step out to believe in faith, to believe these things, to trust God that he's going to do these things. And it says, and when he came to the den, he cried out again with a lamenting voice, living God, verse 21, has, or let's look at the end of 20 again. God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the mouth of the lions. It's almost as if he's saying, because if so, I'll serve him. I'll serve your God. I, w- I want to know that God. If your God showed up and, and he did this in your life, I want to know your God. I've told you guys before that your number one, um, one of your number one abilities and, and powers of tools that you have to witness to your family, to your friends. How many of you guys have family members that are lost that you can't talk to you know jesus was without honor in his own hometown and for some people that are close to you in your life that you love dearly and you want to share the, your faith you want to share the gospel with them they, they knew you before you were in christ they knew what you used to be and they can only see you that way and they won't receive it from you 
But what they will receive from you is what they see when they see a difference in your life, when they see Christ lived out in your life. And one of the number one ways is when things go haywire and you have this still and this calm that in, in, in the face of trials, in the face of a lion's den, that you're sleeping, that you have a peace that surpasses understanding. And we already talked about, right? That God will give you this peace that surpasses understanding. And they, they look at you and they think to themselves, why are you not freaking out? And you can explain, I'm trusting in God. I'm not, you know, I'm not happy, I'm not excited, I'm not, but I'm trusting in God. And I have this even coming because I'm trusting in God. And that will speak volumes saved friends, your unsaved family, the people in your life, when they see these trials. And God allows them. God allows trials in our lives. Big things like this. You know, and, and you get this kind of thing in here where as Daniel goes into the lion's den, he sees the mouth, he sees the angels, can I tell us, shut the mouths of the lions. Any of you guys ever hold like a dog's mouth closed for some reason? Maybe put some peppers in there first and then hold it closed? No, we don't do that, right? I would never do that. Um, and then, but in, in this I never would do that. Calm down. You dog people. I don't even have dogs. You'd have to have a dog to be able to do that. I think if I had a dog, it'd be a good idea. I'll tell you that. I'll confess that. But I've never done it. But yeah, no, I'm not an animal person. So I know you guys judge me for that, but you could could blame my mom. Like, we never had animals, so I just stuck with it. And then Lydia was the same way, and it worked. We got together. Neither one of us wanted animals, so it was good. Um, So anyways, it says that the angels held the mouth of the lions... So it's like Daniel got a good night's sleep that night in the lion's den. Like this crazy, crazy, ferocious situation. And Daniel's over there on a rock sleeping like a baby. Love it. And then it says, um, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Daniel said, in other words, today's terms, relax, Darius, God got this. God's got this. We, we did it. He did it. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. And again, so now Daniel confesses that he's innocent before his God and before the king, which was the truth. It was in contradiction to what the others said, that that Daniel was doing this to... um, defy the king and defy his laws and daniel says look what those guys told you king is not true now where was king darius in this story you guys like he knows all this right like he's on daniel's side like and obviously king darius hadn't been there that long and i don't know it could have been years it could have been you know a multitude of years but definitely not as long as daniel spent with nebuchadnezzar this is at the end of daniel at daniel's time there in babylon and he still yet had this this heart that he he loved daniel he appreciated Daniel's counsel and his wisdom and who he was. And he didn't want to hurt Daniel. He didn't want nothing bad to happen to Daniel. And he was upset when he was tricked. And, and his heart broke. He didn't sleep that night. He did everything he could to try to keep Daniel out of the lion's den. And then Daniel tells him, and then in verse 23, Now the king was exceedingly, again, we find those terms that I told you were coming up, glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel. Where should they take Daniel? Verse 23, now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel, where? Up out. So, again, we see Daniel being brought up and out and kind of the theme that I talked about where Daniel was missing in the fire. He's now in the den. He's being brought up. And Daniel is a picture of the church and the rapture biblically as we see Daniel um, in in these, these, these types that we have where Daniel 
represents the church that was brought out. And I'm probably reaching here a little bit, but I, I like to see where Daniel is always being brought up and out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury wherever was found on him because he believed in his God and we want to believe. And then it says, and the king gave the commandment and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children and their wives. How, how many men were there? You guys remember? Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. How many men? 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these governors whom Daniel... So if it was all of them and their wives and their kids, it was a big group of people. But it says that these lions immediately overpowered them and they threw them into the den of lions and their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. So these lions, these poor lions, right, they're starving. Angels are holding their mouths closed. At some point, I'm sure they give up. and They're not trying to get to Daniel. The lions, the angels are holding them. You know, so all night they're looking at this steak and they can't eat it. And then as soon as these, these others are thrown in, they, they were let loose. And it says they overpowered them. They broke their bones, which is, again, it's violent. They're violent terms that are used here, but... It's what the Word of God says. It's what's true. And it's what happens when we disobey God. And it says, and we come against God people, you know. Oh, I was, we, we sang a song last Wednesday night. And it was like, I thought I heard a lyric in the song that it was like, God brings me the head of my enemies or something. I was like, I must have heard that wrong. And then I was asking these guys after church, like, no, that's what it says. And I was like, but that's not what it said on the board. They're like, I know, but that's what we sang or that's what the words are. It just was wrong on the board. Because I looked up on the board and I didn't read that. But I'm like, I'm pretty sure they just said, God brings me the head of my enemies. That's cool. Like, I love that. Like, God brings you the head of your enemies. That's God. That's Bible, you know. I say that about, you know, those that are attacking Israel. Like, God's going to bring them their heads. And so that's, that's just, that's the price you pay when you mess with God. You mess with his people. You know, and he's going to do it. It's off with their heads, right? Goliath lost his head. David carried it around as a trophy for a while. And it says in verse 24, And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel of Daniel. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote, and we're done, you guys, um, To all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Love it. Before your God. I want to serve your God. That's when you're sitting at home one day and your phone rings, and your friend's like, Hey, I know, you, I know you're a Christian. How do I get saved? I want to serve your God. I love it. I got a couple of those calls. That's just good living, right? Like you're always praying and asking God to let you lead somebody to Jesus and do ministry or witness to somebody. And then you do no work. You do nothing. You just sit on the couch and you watch some show you're probably not supposed to be watching. And the phone rings and it's your, your friend like, like, hey, how do I get saved? And you get to lead him in a prayer and tell him about Jesus. That's good living. So Darius says, you know, the, the God of Daniel. Now, now, again, Nebuchadnezzar made similar decrees, right? Because of the impact of Daniel he had on his life. And Nebuchadnezzar was constantly seeing something God was doing and making that about Daniel. It says, for he, capital H, is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven on the earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now Cyrus is the key character in the Medo-Persian 
um, kingdom, right? I've told you guys why, multiple times, why Cyrus is the key character and still to this day in history is because Cyrus is the one who gives Nehemiah the decree to go back and rebuild um, Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Uh, You find those stories in your Bible in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it says, um, so that's it, let's stand together. So is your God able to shut the mouths of lions? That's kind of what my message tonight for you was. Our takeaway is, again, just that we serve a big God. We serve a big God. You know, one of the things my friend said to me was, you know, after he got through telling me that he just he just wanted to serve God, he just wanted to be done chasing the dollar bill and chasing life, and he's just starting to see things different. God really starting to get a hold of his heart, and uh, he said, I just want to wake up every day and realize that I serve a big God who just can do big things, and we have a big God who can do big things, and no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what your trial is, no matter what you're facing, your God can handle it. And as much of the den, as many nights as you have to sleep in that lion's den, he'll hold the mouth of the lion's closed, or maybe he'll let one come and lick you and scare you a little bit, scratch you or something, but he's doing something to trade you, train you and teach you, and, and he allows those things. Or maybe you do go into the fire for a season, but Jesus goes with you. But your God is able, and he wants to do something, he can do something according to our faith. Amen? So trust in him. Believe that God has something good for you. He's going to take care of you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. And good theology is just, and even if he does and I die, (laughs) streets of gold, Jesus. (laughs) Don't have to deal with you guys anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in heaven, God. And we thank you for these stories of the Old Testament, Father, that are meant, Lord, today, thousands of years later, to encourage us that the same God who held the mouth of the lions over over Daniel and in Daniel's story here, that's a true story, God, that that same God, Lord, loves us the same way and that we're beloved as Daniel. And Lord, that, that you'll hold and close the mouths of our lions and Jesus, that you are able and that you're capable and that we believe in you. And Lord, that we would learn from the character of, of this really just kind of icon in our Bibles, one of the best kind of examples that, that was set for us in the Bible is this life of Daniel because he, he just has stellar character. And Lord, three days, three times a day, as was his custom, he spent time with you. He had all this fruit in his life, all this amazing ministry that he did, all these prophecies that he told, these kings that he, he just absolutely captured their hearts, kings that he wooed, multiple different kings through his stay in Babylon just fell in love with Daniel and the spirit that was within him. And Lord, what was the, what was the key to his great strength? It was just his devotion, his time to, that he spent with you on a daily basis. And the pullouts, three times a day, pulled himself away from whatever was going on and just stopped for a moment to seek your face, God. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from these disciplines and that we would, we would enjoy the time that we, we spend with you, that it's not work and labor and have to, it's get to and it's exciting and it's fun and that we look forward to just getting away from, from everybody for a few minutes to spend time with you every day in our lives. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. Have a great night.